0: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, how are you, man? I'm beat.
1: I'm <laughs> beat. It's been a long week, and we're recording this on Saturday following the premiere of uh, SmackDown Live Friday night or Friday night SmackDown. So uh, it was uh, it was a hell of a week. It was a hell of a show, but uh, it, it took a little out of me. I got to be honest about it.
0: Well, it was uh, quite the debut. The internet was a buzz. Seems like high marks almost everywhere you look. People were really excited that professional wrestling was back on broadcast. And, uh, and this episode is all about you guys. Instead of me asking the questions to Eric and picking his brain today, it's your chance. Today's episode, of course, is hashtag ask Eric anything. And man, you guys took that literally. We've got tons of responses I'm sure you saw the tweet Eric uh, as we're getting ready to cover this did you see just how many questions were submitted just on Twitter you know I didn't I haven't really had a chance this week to
1: spend too much time on uh, social media so I, I I didn't so this is gonna be uh, this is gonna be interesting
0: nearly 500 responses of course there's no way we can get to all of those but there is an appetite to pick your brain sir I hope you're ready for this. I hope there's enough brain left over to pick, but let's do it. All right. Here we go. Uh, mayhem wants to know your famous airplane entrance. How did it start? Who suggested it?
1: You know, nobody suggested it, and and I don't know where it started, probably because uh, back in 97, 98, I was taking flying lessons and ended up buying my own airplane and was just doing a lot of flying. So I had flying on the brain, I guess, is probably where that really came from. Uh, It it just – it happened spontaneously like so many things do, Uh, and I just started doing it over and over and over
0: again, and it stuck. Jay Stovall wants to know, how much do you think the Ninja Star Wars would go for on eBay right about now? Well, I don't
1: know, but I'll tell you one thing. If I could find it on eBay, I'd spend a lot of money to get one of those things back. I actually called Sonny Ono a couple, that was about a year ago, a year and a half ago, because Sonny's one of those guys that saves everything. You know, he's 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 he's, he's got memorabilia of memorabilia, um, and I was hoping that Sonny had a couple games laying around, but uh, he didn't, but I'd love to get my hands on one. It was really, you know, in many ways, Conrad, you know, I'm, I'm the type of person, you know, I, I, I look back at, at life in general and you think about, you know, if one thing in your life was perhaps different, if you were in a different place at a certain period of time, had I not ever gotten involved in martial arts, for example, that means I would have never met Sonny Ono. Had I not met Sonny Ono, there, there would have not been a Ninja Star Wars game. If there hadn't been a Ninja Star Wars game, I would have not ended up, you know, pitching it to, to Vern Gagne and ended up getting a job in the awa and you know one thing always leads to another but it's just uh it's fascinating in life how something as silly as that ninja star wars game um which sunday and i really kind of created on the back of a bar napkin uh with the help of about 12 of our closest 12 ounce friends uh would have <laughs> who would have known that that would have lead to where i am today sitting here in los angeles
0: yeah no i have a similar story i mean it's it's weird how one thing sort of starts this trail of breadcrumbs that leads to this much bigger thing. And without there being a particular Ric Flair robe on eBay, I don't think I'm doing a wrestling podcast with you or StarCast or Know My Wife or any of this stuff. So uh, it is fun to uh, trace that stuff back. So if you're listening and you've got a Ninja Star Wars game, hit us up on Twitter. We uh, we need to get one over to Eric. A couple of great questions here from Chris Herman. He says... Bruce has spoken about some of the pivotal crew behind the scenes, like Kevin Dunn or Alice Edwards. Can you tell us who were some of the pivotal crew or producers behind the scenes for nitro and thunder?
1: Wow. There was quite a few, you know, Woody Kears, Neil Pruitt, certainly at the top of the list would be Neil Pruitt. Uh, Craig Leathers was a, was a great, uh, director, uh, Keith Mitchell, who I, I've talked a lot about here on this podcast, uh, in my opinion, one of the more underrated, you know, behind the scenes uh, talents uh, in WCW went on to TN, I believe now he's at AEW. Very, very smart guy. He's seen it all, done it all, been a part of it. Very cool hand, uh, handled stress and pressure really well. You know, and in live TV, you need to have that. Um, th- those are the ones that really stand out in my mind the most.
0: Chris has another question here. Did you ever consider having Bobby Heenan act as a manager in WCW, or was he specifically brought in as strictly a commentator role? No, I, I, no
1: we never considered it. And I think part of that reason for that is that Bob, Bobby made it clear that he wasn't interested in it when we first started our discussions. Uh, not that I was thinking about, you know, asking Bobby to manage, but in our early discussions about making his way over, uh, it was made clear that he, he was really just interested in announcing. He wasn't interested in managing anymore. Any other on camera roles. He he wanted to come in he wanted to do TV and he wanted to go home and he wasn't interested in managing. So um, not that it wouldn't have been great. You know, Bobby, I think will go down. Should already be there uh, in in terms of the a list of the all time greatest managers ever. And one of the great things you go back and look at some of Bobby Heenan's early work, and I'm talking about you know the '70s and early '80s. Bobby could go in the ring. You know, he was not only a great talker; he could just he was a master on the mic, no question about it. But he could also, uh, when needed, um, he could go in the ring. He was a bumping. Machine, And I think anytime you have a manager that is so, uh, so good on the mic and, and be able to bump when necessary, uh, and and get in the ring and help tell the story that way. Um, and Bobby was, I think the epitome of the best of the best.
0: Uh, another question here, Mike Whitaker wants to know when you were in charge of WCW, if WWE had proposed doing a split pay-per-view, would you have considered it?
1: Oh, I think so for sure um now a lot of that depends on the timing early on when i was running wcw before nitro uh, and even probably after nitro before the nwo i certainly would have entertained that who you know would have been silly not to entertain it it would have been a great opportunity uh but i think after we kind of gained the traction that we gained in 96 97 in particular early 98 it probably wouldn't have been very interesting at that point but certainly in the you know, 94, 95, early 96, absolutely would have considered it.
0: So the answer is if you were winning, uh, maybe not. But if you were playing catch-up ball, heck yeah, let's do it. Yeah, said another way. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Josh Kuhn was to know how would Eric describe his relationship with Vince McMahon? And did he ever think at the height of WCW he would have any sort of relationship of any kind with Vince?
1: That's a great question. And I mean my relationship now, I, I have to say this, and I know this is gonna sound like I'm pandering and you know, because I work here and I work with Vince and I I know how this is gonna sound, but I'm gonna I'm just gonna be honest and I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, you know, in WCW, I had so many people that would come over from WWE and of course everybody that came over, and and, and this is just human nature, right? They would come over and they would tell me basically Basically, what they thought I wanted to hear, and they would, you know, which which means there was a lot of negative things that people would say about, you know, Vince or what was the WWF at the time and all that kind of thing. And I always took it with a grain of salt because I I knew what it was. These are people that are coming in and they want to kind of ingratiate themselves into the new company and develop a great relationship with me and the other people on uh, on the staff and so forth. So of course they would come over and they would tell you all the negative things. They think, or they thought, they th- that we wanted to hear, um, but even with all of that, you know, one of the things that I would hear consistently was, yeah, yeah, you know, Vince McMahon is this, he's that, he's this, he's that, all the negative things they think I wanted to hear. Like I said, but they would always kind of end it. But he is kind of a genius, and I thought, well, you know, come on, these are just guys that are trying to keep the door open in case they've got to go back, you know, and I, or I would read uh, oftentimes. Things that people would say about Vince and, and talk about what a genius he was and, and that type of thing. And again, I would just always take it with a grain of salt and think, well, these guys are just trying to keep the door open, which is you know good business. I get it. And and now that you know, and when I worked with WWE as a talent, I never really worked closely at all with Vince. Um, occasionally, if we had you know scenes to do together and things like that, but I had very few you know, one-on-one type of conversations with Vince, just a small handful, to be honest about it. Now that I'm working here, and I've been here for a couple months now, and I'm working fairly closely with him. um, He is one of the most fascinating people I've ever worked with. Um, And I don't throw the term genius around lightly, because that means different things to different people. But I think Vince in his own way is definitely a genius of sorts, however you want to define that. And that doesn't mean that he has all the answers. In my opinion, he doesn't have all all the right answers to every situation. Um, I think even Vince would recognize that he's made some bad decisions creatively or otherwise uh, throughout his career. But there are times, honestly, you know, in, in the middle of a meeting, he'll say something or he'll look at a story or he'll look at a character and, He'll pick out something that seems so small, um, a detail, either in a story or in a character or a way of presenting a character that seems so small when you first hear it. But then as you think about it and you start expanding on that, you realize that it makes all the difference in the world. And I I, I find him to be Like I said, I hate to throw the word genius around because it means different things to different people, but I think he is one of the most fascinating people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. I I like the fact that he's very direct. You know, you know where you stand with Vince. I've always appreciated that in anybody, you know, Harvey Schiller was much the same way. You know, you always knew, you, you knew where you stood with, with Harvey and, and Vince McMahon is very similar in that respect. There, there's no ambiguity <laughs> when it comes to, to dealing with him. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. Um, and, and and most of the time for someone like me, I, I respected and appreciated it. So um, that's kind of the contrast, I guess, if you will, what I thought Vince McMahon was like versus what, Having worked with him now for a couple months, has has led me to to see or to believe. Uh, and in terms of you know, did I ever think in WCW I'd have any kind of a working relationship? Oh hell no! Come on, you know I, I would have I would have probably bet that at some point in time, if he had the opportunity, he'd run me over if he saw me on the street, um, or have somebody else do it. <laughs> but uh, I I'd certainly never thought I'd have a working relationship with him, especially one that I I enjoy as much as I do right now.
0: Another great question from Josh. If Eric could have kept the NWO to just four members, like the horseman, who would have been his four? Uh,
1: I would have probably, uh, Hogan, Hall, Nash, and, uh, X-Pac.
0: So Hall, Nash, Hogan, X-Pac. That's the four. Yep, yep. Oh, That's a great four. Can't argue that. Uh, Tommy wants to know whose idea was it for the Jay lethal Ric Flair promo in TNA with lethal impersonating Rick to Rick?
1: Oh, gosh. I don't – you know, it wasn't one person's idea. I think we had heard uh, Jay – we heard him doing his impersonations backstage all the time. It was People were laughing their asses off whenever he would do it. And I don't – it wasn't one person's idea. I think, you know, we all heard it, and it probably started out with a, hey, what if we did it on camera kind of thing? And Rick got excited about it, and Jay was certainly excited about it. But I I couldn't pin that. That's another one of those things, you know, I wish – I wish we knew who who was the person who first said, hey, what if we do this? But unfortunately, you know, in the creative process, that rarely occurs. Very rarely does one person step forward and say, I have the idea. And, and, And then we run with it. It's generally, you know, a collaborative type of thing. Or in this case, I think it started out with people just joking around backstage. And then, you know, all of us
0: realizing that, hey, this would make some great TV. No, it really did. If you don't know what we're talking about, throw it in your Google machine. It's, it's quite the moment. Uh, another interesting question here from Owen. I don't know that you and I've talked about this before. Maybe we have. Owen asks, does Ted Turner have a spot in the WWE hall of fame? In your opinion?
1: you know, that's come up before and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but I do believe that there's been an attempt or two over the years to reach out to Ted to, to see if he'd be interested in that. Um, I think he should, you know, in, in terms of look, it, it, whatever the hall of fame means to anybody. And again, like the word genius, it can mean different things to different people. You know, you uh, know, Whether or not someone deserves – I don't even know if deserves is a fair word or whether or not somebody should, I guess, be in a Hall of Fame, I guess depends on your perspective. My perspective is that um, anybody that has had a significant impact on the evolution of the industry or is responsible in any small part or large for the industry having grown to the extent that it has over the last 30 or 40 years, probably should be in the Hall of Fame or or at least be recognized in one way, shape, or form. Um, and I think certainly it could be argued that Ted Turner, had it not been for Ted Turner uh, and his commitment to sports entertainment, professional wrestling, whatever you choose to call it, had it not been for that commitment, had it not been for – the opportunity for WCW back in the late 80s, early 90s uh, to to become a place for a lot of great talent to work and evolve. Great talent that worked and evolved and ended up going to to WWF as a result. I was, inter- I was It's interesting. Bruce Pichard has a, a great history and perspective on The Undertaker, which I heard the other day for the very first time. And how Undertaker ended up coming to, originally coming to WWF from WCW, where Mean Mark Callis was being managed by Paul Heyman. And Bruce saw him, and and I'm not going to try to tell the story because I'll get it wrong. I've only heard it one time. But Bruce, you know, was a big fan and had watched uh, Mark Callis, Mean Mark Callis in WCW and really wanted to get him into WWF and made the pitch. And the rest is history. Um, that's an example of had it, you know, we started this show talking about, you know, what if this hadn't have been, you know, what if there would have never been a WCW? What, what if Ted Turner would have never put WCW on, on, on TBS? Well, there's a good chance that we wouldn't know who the undertaker is. He might not have ever made his way to, to WWF. And here we are, you know. 20, 25, 30 years later, you know, recognizing Undertaker is probably one of the the premier icons in the industry. And that might have not happened had it not been for Ted Turner in WCW. So I think when you look at someone's I hate to say body of work that's not really appropriate here, but when you look at someone's overall impact on the industry and the contributions that they've made, and look, not not all of them were great. You know, there's there's been some dark moments in WCW, um, and, and and I'm sure from WWE's point of view, there were probably more dark moments than than others. But I think it would be hard for anybody to argue that Ted Turner's commitment to the industry is one of the things that has helped us get to where we are today. Had it not been for the competition that WCW provided the WWE at a critical time in the mid nineties and late nineties, when when sports entertainment was kind of teetering a little bit um, in terms of popularity, Uh, had it not been for that competition that reinvigorated the business and re-energized it and grew the business to a level that up to that point, no one would have ever dreamed. Um, I'm not sure that we'd be where we are today. Maybe. But I think it's fair to say, maybe not. So for that reason alone, I would think that Ted Turner should probably get a nod. Now, I will say that um, I don't talk to Ted, but I, I do talk to. Uh, I have a friend that that does talk to Ted occasionally, and Ted's just not making any public appearances anymore. You know, he's 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 just not. Uh, every once in a while, you'll catch him doing an interview with a magazine, but that's a very controlled type of an environment, and, and, and very limited. So I doubt we'll ever see uh, Ted traveling to the WWE Hall of Fame anytime soon.
0: To clarify, when you said you don't talk to Ted, that's not because you guys are cross. It's just you know life, right?
1: No, 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 no. In fact, the last time I did talk to Ted, it was quite a few years ago now, several years ago, when I needed. uh, I was trying to do a deal uh, for a reality show for Jeff Gordon, uh, and working with the NASCAR team. And I was (laughs) interestingly enough, uh, I had pitched it to Fox uh, Network, and they were literally, you know. The show didn't get made, but it, it was a—it was within hours of getting getting sold, literally. And in fact, it was a Friday. I was in Los Angeles, and I got a call from the representative at Fox that I was working with, um, and he said, "Eric, take the weekend off. You can enjoy the weekend with your family because Monday morning you've got a deal." That's how close it was, and in order for me to put that deal together, I had to convince uh, Jeff Gordon and his, his management team that we were the right production company, you know, to put behind it. And (laughs) Jeff's actually Jeff's dad, uh, who was managing him at the time. said, Eric, you got, you got, he was an older, older guy. He said, Eric, you got to give me, you know, I mean, I've heard about you and I know who you are, you know, all that, but I I need a reference kind of old school. Right. And I said, well, you know, I, I guess I could get, no, he, I didn't, I didn't suggest it. He asked me, so said, can, can you have Ted Turner give me a call? <laughs> I looked at Jason Hervey, my business partner at the time. And I went, yeah, I don't know. So I'm, I'm just going to say yes. <laughs> I said, so I said, sure. I'll, I'll have Ted give you a call. So he, he said, great. You can you, you give Ted, get Ted to give me a call and you know, we've got a deal. So <laughs> Jason and I left and we were heading back to Atlanta uh, to catch a flight. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to call and see if I can get Ted to do it. All he can do is say no. And sure enough, I didn't call Ted directly. I called through a, a Bill Shaw actually helped set up the call. And I called Bill. I said, Bill, I got a situation. I really need a favor because you have Ted give this guy a call. It's Jeff Gordon's dad. And Ted not only gave him a call, but sent a nice letter to him and, you know, said all the right things and we ended up getting the deal. So that was the last, and that was probably in, when was that? That would have been probably 2002, maybe 2003. So, uh, no, I have, a, I had a, a, a great relationship with that. Even after WCW, uh, after I left WCW and WCW was subsequently sold to WWE. Uh, but, Ted is, you know, Ted travels the world. Uh, he's really involved in all of his philanthropy. Uh, he's, I think, he's probably the single largest landowner in the United States, and raises buffalo. It's something that he's very passionate about, and he's got his chain of Ted Turner's bar and grills. Uh, so he's a very busy guy. But like I said, his health uh, is 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 not great right now. And I don't think there's a whole lot of people that talk to Ted on a regular basis, other than his immediate family and the people that he does business with very closely.
0: Crimson mask, 49 right? It's, it's such an iconic theme, but how was that particular piece of music chosen for the NWA theme song? The NWO. Th- yeah, uh, theme yeah. NW- song? That NW. was, it, it
1: was, it was picked out, of, you know, Turner broadcasting had a c- catalog of music that they owned. And we were just looking for music, and we wanted to use music that we we could use out of the Turner catalog so we didn't have to create it or purchase it or license it from somebody else. Because third-party, third-party licensing deals could be very complicated and inexpensive. Um, so we just went through the catalog, and it, it kind of popped out. You know, um, Craig Leathers and his team, uh, Annette Yoder, a couple other people were going through that catalog and picking out songs that felt like they might work. And that was one of the songs that Turner owned in its music catalog. And we went, wow, that kind of fits. And we used it.
0: Well, it's, it's iconic music and, um, I'm glad you guys used it. Uh, Grant Davis writes in during a recent episode of Pritchard show, they brought up Eric's Sturgis at full throttle pay-per-view event from 2004. Any memories or interesting stories from this horrible idea? Grant writes. I'm, I'm a little confused.
1: Oh, Sturgis full throttle. Okay. Not the Sturgis, not the WCW Sturgis events, but Sturgis full throttle. Yeah. That was a disaster. Oh <laughs> shit.
0: God. You and I uh, never talked about it, but Bruce and I were having a blast talking about it. Like what the fuck could they even do with this thing? And Bruce is just, it, we had a great time chopping it up and waxing po- uh, poetic about how this idea may have came to be, but you lived it. Tell us about this. Oh, uh, well,
1: you know, Sturgis is a, I mean, Sturgis is an event that's been going on for almost 80 years. It draws. You know, estimates anywhere from a minimum of about a half a million up to some years, depending on the year, up to a million, you know, motorcycle enthusiasts from all over the world. And it is it is it's kind of like Mardi Gras in a way. Uh, It's like Mardi Gras for bikers. And there's so many things going on all over the Sturgis area. And it's not just, you know, downtown Sturgis. That's a small part of it. But there's all these major campgrounds. There's a place out there called the Buffalo Chip, and I don't know how many people camp there for four, five, six days, whatever it is, mm-hmm. a week. But yeah, thousands of people camp there. And it's it, – it, it. God, it's so hard to explain. It's like Woodstock meets uh, – an orgy meets um, – a motorcycle rally and race meets a giant frat party, you know, and it's just so much fun and it's so crazy and bizarre. So the thought was, you know, we'd have our wrestling event there, but there were so many things about Surges that we couldn't put on a WCW pay-per-view. It would have been inappropriate. So the thought was, uh, you know, that we knew the owner of uh, full throttle saloon and that was another one like the Buffalo chip. It was another one of the more famous, kind of bars and in, in establishments in the Sturgis area where a lot of crazy shit went down. So we thought, what if we use the Full Throttle as kind of our host location? And we had, you know, there was obviously music there and all kinds of other crazy shit going on. And then we'll throw to remote packages in and around the Sturgis area. We'll do it all live. You know, some of it we had pre-taped, but some of it was live. And we'll bring people an opportunity to kind of see Sturgis, all of it, not just, you know, a WCW event in downtown Sturgis, but the entire Sturgis experience from remote locations, not only in Sturgis, but around Sturgis. So the idea on paper was great, but everything that could possibly go wrong did. uh, And it ended up being probably one of the worst television production experiences I've ever had, Uh, the only thing close would have been the girls gone wild pay-per-view that we did with WWE, uh, shortly thereafter, but it was, it it was tough. It was a great idea on paper, but one that I wish I would have never tried to execute.
0: Well, there you go. I don't know why that's fun to me, but it is. Um, let's talk a little bit. You should have been there.
1: (laughs) 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 God almighty. I, I see some things I try to forget and that's one of them. Um, I probably aged about seven years on that particular week, just putting that nothing together and trying to deliver it. So yeah, uh, hopefully we'll never talk about that again.
0: Helter Skelter for life writes in Eric. You've said many times that Goldberg had guys quote in his ear, stirring the shit, pushing his buttons, et cetera, but you never say who. So who? Oh, Hulk Hogan, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall.
1: Arn Anderson, and, and I'm not saying that these people were in his ear trying to, to screw with him or giving him bad advice, but when you're getting you know, uh, advice that is sometimes diametrically opposed to the last advice you just got from somebody you respect, it can be very confusing when you don't have a basis of experience or a base of experience like like Bill did at the time. So he was getting pulled in a lot of different directions. I, so a lot of top people... Uh, that, that you know, were in Bill's circle and saw Bill as a valuable commodity and opportunity and somebody that could grow as a character and also someone that they wanted to work with down the road. Uh, so there were a lot of people in his year, but, you know, a lot of them were, you know, really top people. And there were some people that Bill just, you know, trusted and had confidence in. I'm, I'm sure Barry Bloom and, and his attorney, Henry Holmes, probably had, you know, a lot to do with, know, Bill's outlook and perspective on things as well. So he was getting pulled in a lot of different directions by a lot of different people.
0: Let's talk about the why. I know you don't know why, but let's guess why. You know, sometimes we would hear guys like um, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall say, hey, we had favored nations in our contract. So we wanted Brett to come in for more money because that meant we got more money. But other times we would hear guys say that perhaps Kevin Nash and Scott Hall and the WWF were... Uh, stirring the shit intentionally where they would talk about payoffs in front of one another in maybe a less than truthful way like man can you believe we only got 800 grand for Summerslam? what the fuck now of course they didn't really get that they just wanted that guy to then be upset and go to vince and complain about his payoff and then just watch the chaos that's the rumor and innuendo do you think that some of these folks in his ear were doing it because hey if uh This works out for him, maybe it'll work out for me, or was it just, hey, let's just create a shit show and watch the fireworks?
1: I think it was probably the latter. I think there was a lot of uh there was a lot of shit disturbing going on just for entertainment purposes. Um Bill's you know it's easy to push Bill's buttons. He goes off hurt quickly. You know, it's it's not hard to get Bill, you know, agitated and excited. And I think you know, he he opened himself up to some of that, and I think there was a little bit, uh, if maybe more than a little bit, of guys, you know, stirring him up and and getting in his ear and twisting him around himself a little bit, just for entertainment purposes. I'm not buying the you know favored nations nonsense. Uh, We can go back and forth on that as long as we want. We have talked about this before. Um, I think there's been a lot of things said about what people had in their agreements and didn't have in their agreements that is less than factual. Um, But over the years, people keep telling the same stories and they keep trying to make those stories sound more interesting and trying to make themselves sound more relevant than they really were at the time. And 20 years later, you hear all kinds of things about what was in people's contracts and what wasn't. Uh, And some of it isn't true at all. But that notwithstanding, I would say that the majority of the time, you know, for example, Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan had a very distinct perspective on bill at the time and what hulk thought and he believed it hulk didn't care he wasn't going to make any more or less money based on how much money bill goldberg made or didn't make but hulk was one of those people that was in bill's ear And, and and not in a not in a nefarious way not in a way where he was trying to get bill twisted up inside or or watch him you know go nuts or any of that kind of stuff it was just Terry Hulk giving his opinion, Sting would do the same thing. Kevin Nash, depending on the day, he may want to entertain himself, depending on his mood, or he may have been really trying to help Bill. Um, and not everybody's perspective was consistent. You know it, what what Kevin saw for Bill, or so in in terms of his potential. And the way he should be conducting business was probably different than the way Hulk Hogan saw it and different than the way Kevin or Scott Hall saw it or different than the way Ric Flair saw it or Arn Anderson or Terry Taylor or any number of other people that had access to Bill and Bill would listen to. And it's not that it was always, you know, to stir them up or always to create, you know, an opportunity. So if Bill made more money, they made more money. It it wasn't that. It was sometimes people just honestly sharing what they believed was the the right thing to do. And again, I'll go back to what I said a few moments ago, not to be redundant, but when you don't have any base of knowledge, when you have zero experience, you're, you're plucked into this bizarro world called sports entertainment where the rules are so much different than any rules you've ever played by in life in, in terms of how a character you know gets over and what you should do or should not do in the ring. And some of the, sometimes the, the doing and not doing and what you should do and shouldn't do in the ring are, is very nuanced. And again, if you have zero experience, it would be like you know taking somebody that's never been in an airplane and plopping them down in the in, in the cockpit of a Lear 24 and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to fly this thing from Chicago to L.A. Try to hold it at about 33,000 feet if you can, and I'll see you when we get there. I mean, you're, you're in a world that you have no understanding of. And then when you have people that, you know, have been successful in that industry, all telling you different things, it can be fucking nerve wracking. And, and it certainly was for Bill. But I don't always think it was, there was a nefarious, you know, intent behind, behind it all the time. And I do think there, there were times where, where it was just pure entertainment for the boys in a locker room.
0: Jeff Stewart wants to know any good Leparca stories. I always enjo- enjoyed the chairman of WCW.
1: I re- you know I, I don't have any Leparca stories, and I I wish, you know, I, I kind of envy Bruce sometimes because Bruce, you know, first, first of all, he's been in the industry longer than I have, which says something at this point, um, over thirty years. And Bruce was a lot closer to talent. You know, he was in talent relations for a long time, and he was a talent for a long time. And Bruce was a talent and in talent relations back when things was, back when it was a little bit more wild, wild west. In today's world, everything is much more corporate and, and buttoned up, and you don't see or hear any of the types of stories that you would hear of back in the late 80s or even the early 90s. But... In my role at WCW, you know, when I got there, I was a C-Squad announcer. I didn't socialize with talent, maybe a small handful of them. I hung out with Dusty Rhodes and Doug Dillinger and, to a degree, Diamond Dallas Page, and that was pretty much it. I didn't socialize or travel with or hang out with you know, a lot of the talent. So I just didn't see a lot of the, the, the three-ring circus that went on behind the scenes and on the road. Uh, And then as I became an executive, although I did interact more with talent at that point, it still wasn't in an environment where I would see that kind of, you know, freak show outside of the arena that we've, we've all heard so many stories about. So, unfortunately, the answer is I have no really interesting Leparca stories. I'd see him backstage, you know, at TV. We'd interact to the extent that we did, but um, very, very little uh, exposure to him outside of the, the television arena. And as such, there were no fantastic Leparca stories to talk about. Jer- i can make some sh- I, I should make some shit up what i should do is you know find an intern that wants to be a writer and just have them write up a bunch of really crazy stories about some of these wrestlers that people ask me about so that i kind of have them in my back pocket but that wouldn't be honest and um unfortunately I, my my perspective on that kind of thing is kind of boring compared to a lot of people's i
0: was I was getting disappointed i was like well we'll uh we'll look forward to those made-up stories right here next week <laughs>
1: uh <laughs> Uh, no, there's there's a lot of other podcasts that people can listen to when they can hear a lot of made up stories, but not on this one.
0: All righty, uh, Jared wants to know what was the reaction backstage when the infamous Sid leg break happened?
1: Oh God, I was sitting at a I was sitting backstage uh, at, at a desk where we had a monitor and I was watching the show and it was kind of. I think the first reaction, we were just kind of like numb to it. It was kind of like, did that really just happen? And of course, there's a replay involved. And by that time, it sunk in. And then. I don't want to say I was getting nauseous because that would be that would be exaggerating my reaction, but I was on the verge of it. It was like sickening, kind of like the Joe Theismann leg break in the NFL so so many years ago. You see it, and you know you gotta watch it, but you wish you didn't kind of thing. It's like a, a really bad car accident. You know you you know you shouldn't look at it, but you end up doing it anyway, and that's kind of how I felt. I was a little disgusted with myself for having to look at it. You know, two or three times in a row. It was really it was nauseating, really.
0: Well, and with that note, we should talk about, you know.
1: <laughs> I can't wait to hear this transition.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, tell me we're not going to pitch a
1: product right now, please.
0: <laughs> I was going to, but we'll keep it moving. Okay, uh, let's uh, let's talk about Terry Taylor. Jeff wants to know, Eric, you never speak too highly of Terry Taylor. What's it like working with him in the same company now?
1: Well, I never see him, so I have no issues with it. And I had no issue. Look, Terry is a—I I don't dislike Terry Taylor. I—I I, I won't. I mean, I like being around Terry. He's—he's. He's, let me let me put him over for a few minutes. All right, Terry Taylor, when he chose to be—and I'm going to talk about—I'm going to talk about my relationship with him in the past tense because I—I I had to take a pause and realize that he—he he does actually work for WWE down at the <laughs> Performance Center. But I I know you're laughing and that probably sounds like a shot, but I, you know, I don't know who's down with the performance. No,
0: no, I know. It's just, this company is so big and there are so many people that work there that you could have been here for months and months and literally have no idea that he works there because you are worlds and worlds apart in what your jobs are every day.
1: No. Well, and you know, we're 1500 miles apart. So I. You know, I certainly don't see him and I'm not, you know, I have no real, I've never even been to the performance center. So I'm, you know, there's a lot of things that's going on down there that I'm totally unaware of. But um, let let me, let me talk about working with Terry and WCW and and in TNA. You know, I know we covered TNA last week and let's talk about TNA. Terry. We we would get to TV at at, uh, Universal when we were working with TNA, and we'd have a creative meeting before television, and Terry was always at one end of the table. And there were times when we were kind of breaking down what we wanted to do on television and kind of laying it out and picking it apart and debating it. And some of the best ideas I've ever heard um, as far as finishes and ways to lay out matches and things like that came from Terry Taylor. So he has a great mind um, when it comes to laying out matches and finishes and psychology. Um, Terry was always someone who impressed me in that regard. Um, but there were other things about his personality and, and the way he conducted himself that was less than impressive. Um, but I never disliked Terry. Sometimes I found it difficult to, to manage him and and manage the fallout that sometimes the way he conducted himself created. But it, it was never a lack of respect for what he brought to the table in terms of the product or developing a character. Uh, Terry is a very, very knowledgeable guy. So I know it probably sounds, you know, Terry had a big mouth. Terry would talk to people he shouldn't have been talking to. Terry had a sense of humor that sometimes rubbed people when I say rub people the wrong way, that's I'm, I'm being very gentle here. Um, Terry would blurt things out sometimes that, you know, were problematic uh, on a corporate level or, or on a personal level. Uh, those are all things that, that, you know, I I found challenging about working with Terry, but I want to make it really clear when it comes to the in-ring product and developing a character and sometimes coming up with great finishes and analyzing psychology in a match. Terry was probably on a short list of, you know, a handful of people that I I really had a lot of respect for.
0: Let's keep it moving here. We've got another uh, good question here uh, from uh, Andrew. He says, how did you enjoy your most recent Australia tour? had a very entertaining time at your Brisbane show.
1: God, I had so much fun. I think about that tour a lot. In fact, I was, uh, when I was on a plane on the jet coming here to LA, I was going through some of my photos and cleaning some stuff out. And I, I came across probably about a dozen pictures that I took while I was on that tour. And it, you know, reminded me how, but it was right before I came to, to WWE. So, uh, I had so much fun on that tour. I love Australia. The people were fantastic. Wrestling fans there are so appreciative because not a lot of guys, you know, it's kind of a long trip, you know, kind of a big deal to get over there and it's expensive. And, um, I, I just had a blast. I I wish I could do it again. If there was a way I could make a living doing five or six tours of Australia a year, I'd probably do it, you know, but I, I had a blast. I really did. I, I really look forward to going back.
0: Yeah, I, I brought that question up because I know that uh, when Bruce went, Bruce said, you know, here's the the testament from Eric. Uh, Eric said, even if you don't make any money, Bruce, you got to go. This is just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You got to go. And I knew you loved Australia, and I wanted some of our Australian listeners to hear your testimony because I know you felt strongly about what a great time that was.
1: No, it, it, it's so interesting because, you know, pe- people are people, but the, the I don't know what it is, man, but it, it's like going to the UK. It's a very, I have a very similar experience when I go to the UK, the wrestling fans are just so appreciative and respectful and they have a blast. I mean, I, I probably had more fun doing those shows than I've had doing anything, uh, in decades. I mean, I just, I didn't want them to end. You know, there were, there were a couple times up there, the show was supposed to last 90 minutes, and, it, you know, I'm, I'm up there, you know, at two and a half hours going, no, I don't want to stop. I kept wanting to do the Q and A's and and interacting with the fans because I I literally I was having way more fun than the fans were that were there and they were having a good time. Don't get me wrong. But for me to be up there on stage and and being able to make those people laugh and tell them stories and get great questions out of them and kind of do what we do here, but on a larger scale uh, live, at least God, it's so much fun. I can't wait to go back and do it again.
0: Another question here from Tim in the summer suit. Who was the biggest kiss ass in WCW? (laughs) Oh God. Great question.
1: Um, DM, I, I I know dead air sucks on a podcast, so I'd have to, I'm going to pass on that one just because I'm going to have to think about that for a little bit. You know, I want to say it's not look talent. Wouldn't kiss ass in a very overt way, especially in front of, you know, the other talent, because they'd all get ribbed for it and they'd have a hard time living backstage, you know, with the rest of the crew if they did. But there were, you know, there were times when, you know, I, I could tell people were, again, telling, telling you things that they know you want to hear. And I see through that. So my, I've got a pretty good bullshit meter most of the time. And, you know, there were a couple times when. You know, talent would peg my meter, but I'd have to really think long and hard about who is the, the, the biggest kiss ass.
0: I don't think you'll have to think long about this one. Ari Rosenbaum writes Greg Gagne claimed the NWO and bringing in Hogan was all his idea and that you took his bonus. Your response?
1: Greg Gagne is a goof. You know, and I hate to say it, I just saw Greg last night. You know, and I, <laughs> I, 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 he's just a goof. And I, 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 hate to say that because I had so much respect for Vern and for Greg and the opportunity that, that was afforded to me by that family. But at the same time, when I hear these types of things and I, for the most part, I've, I've heard people say, Oh, Greg, God, you said this, or you know, this guy said that. And I just go, yeah, whatever. Kind of falls into that same category of people telling you things that they think you want to hear. And. And I dismiss it, but there's been a couple occasions where I've come across video um, where I've heard Greg say some pretty outrageous things. And I, I want because I want to like Greg. You know, Greg's also a guy up until about a year ago would call me about three or four times a year because he had this great television idea and he knew that I had good relationships in the television industry and you know, would try to get me to help him to sell television shows and things like that. And then at the same time, this is a guy that's you know going around sticking a knife in my back and, and, and burying me and taking credit for things he had nothing to do with. Um, one of the challenges that I had with bringing Hulk Hogan in was because Greg Gagne was there. That was that was that was a hurdle for me. It wasn't an asset for me. If 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 Hulk didn't have a lot of uh, he didn't have a lot of respect for Greg in in certain ways. Didn't trust him. And now I know why. Um, I hired Greg. I, I, I wanted to, Greg to ha- you know to have an opportunity in WCW because I number one I respected his his experience and and out of respect for you know, the relationship I developed with with him and his dad. I brought him into WCW only to have him try to circumvent me and and, and go to my boss with, you know, a ridiculous proposition. And it was one of the reasons that I, I fired Greg. And I think because I fired Greg, there was a lot of resentment uh, that he probably is still carrying around deep down inside. And it's, it's unfortunate. Greg had nothing to do with bringing Hulk Hogan in. Zero. Nothing. Nada, not a conversation, not a meeting, nada, nada, nothing. Um, in terms of the NWO, that's laughable. It's just absolutely laughable. And I don't know why he embarrasses himself. Because it's, it doesn't even anger me anymore. It's just so silly that I can't believe people believe it or, or laugh in his face when he says it. But there is nothing further from the truth. Uh, <laughs> Greg Gagne had anything to do with the nwo
0: uh here's an interesting question rob writes in eric why do you think if WWE has had an old school raw and raw reunion that they've never had a nitro reunion or an old school nitro i'd love to see it oh
1: well let's break that one down a little bit who would so if we had a an nwo reunion or a nitro reunion you'd probably see many of the same people that we see on a Raw reunion. <laughs> I, mean, just, I mean, Kevin Ashcott hall we see them pretty frequently. Um, Hulk Hogan, we see him pretty frequently. x we see him pretty frequently. Uh, so many of the big names that were a part of Nitro, we see quite regularly in the reunion-type environments uh, or at the Hall of Fame ceremony. So I, I think it would be kind of hard to pull that off and make it feel special when it's people that we see on a pretty regular basis anyway.
0: Well, I, I would like to see the old set. I know that you guys just debuted a couple of really badass sets on raw and Smackdown, but the old school nitro set is always going to have a special place in my heart. And I wish we could see it one more time, but and you, you, you guys do have it. It's sitting in the warehouse, but, uh, I don't see it coming on TV anytime soon. Uh, never
1: no. say never, say never brother. Never say never.
0: Don't get me excited. Stephen wants to know what was the deal with Van Hammer. He had the look and potential. Why didn't he pan out?
1: Oh, I don't know. You know, talent is a—it's a tricky thing. Um, you can have a great look. You can have all the potential in the world. Um, but if it—if it just doesn't click, if you just don't really connect with the psychology and in the storytelling aspect of, of what it takes to become a star in this industry, it doesn't matter how what your look is. It's, you know, it just doesn't. And Van Hammer was one of those guys that, you know, if there were 10 things you absolutely needed to become a big star, might have had six of them, but four of them were missing. And it just didn't happen. I don't think that's unusual. In any business, there's a lot of actors and actresses that seem to have Everything that one would possibly need to become a, a a big star, that just don't click with the audience, um, and I think it's probably true in this industry as well.
0: An interesting question here, that's sort of off the beaten path from something we might normally talk about, it comes to us from Ross. Uh, Eric has dealt with a lot of uh, who deserves what with regard to pay in wrestling. I'm curious his opinion on college basketball or football players getting paid to play, and what he thinks. It's been a hot topic recently.
1: Wow, that's a great question. And I'm not a very knowledgeable sports fan when it comes to college athletics, but I, I'm fairly aware because I do spend a lot of time, you know, watching the news and, and staying up on different current events. To me, college sports is, I don't want to say corrupt, it would be probably too strong of a word, but it's its not as clean of a business as we would like to think there's a lot of money being made by colleges, universities, a lot of dollars changing hands. Um, I think it's unfortunate that the players, the athletes themselves do not get to participate in some of that revenue. Um, I, again, I'm not knowledgeable enough to have a strong opinion about it other than to say, anytime you have the, the vast amounts of money that are changing hands in any type of an industry. Um, one has to suspect, especially when you're dealing with colleges and universities and you know, a lot of these colleges and universities are federally subsidized and you you have to kind of ask yourself how clean of a business it really is. And from where I stand, it doesn't look like it's a very clean business. So I, I think it's something that needs to be looked at very closely. Um, I think it is. I think more and more people are starting to recognize that. I mean, just look at the college tuition scam that we, we we've, we've read about recently and it's still in the headlines even today where, you know, students are, are and their parents in some cases are coming up with these fake scholarship profiles so that their kids can get accepted to these high profile colleges and expensive colleges that in in many cases are subsidized by the government and in and, and private and private donations so I, it's a pretty dirty business it's about really the only observation i could make is it's a dirty business and i think somebody needs to look at it and in the at the end of it i think if you if you're working hard and you're generating revenue for a college like many of these athletes do um, you should be able to, to participate in some of that revenue
0: Interesting question here that I don't think we've ever talked about from Elegantly Wasted. He says, is it true that during the Nitro winning streak, you used to leave gloating messages on Vinta's answering machine on Tuesday mornings after the ratings came out?
1: Mm, I didn't do it on a regular basis. I think I may have done it (laughs) once or twice.
0: (laughs) Give me an example of what you think you might have said.
1: Oh, God, I can't.
0: I'd be making shit up
1: off the top of my head and... My, I'm too beat up to do that right now, but I, I do. Re, I think I recall doing it once or twice.
0: That is maybe the most Eric Bischoff thing we've ever talked about here on the show. Well, uh, you
1: know, it, it, it's, it wasn't, and this is just the way I think, okay? And, or the way I used to think, I should say. It, it wasn't because I was gloating, it, 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 it was because I wanted to get under his skin. And I, I knew that, I, I believed, I shouldn't say I knew because I didn't know Vince at the time, but based on things that
0: I had heard about Vince. Hang on, in the uh, background, is that Scott Steiner making an entrance into your room right now?
1: Oh, no, I'm, I'm in downtown Los Angeles, and I think is there's either a parade or.
0: Grand Theft Auto it, 17. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto. There may be a police chase going on
1: outside my, my hotel room. But I'd always, you know, heard that, you know, Vince was, you know, volatile and had a heck of a temper and all that kind of thing. And I thought, well. You know, what better way to keep him off his game than by driving him crazy with this kind of stupid shit, whether it was giving away finishes or, you know, leaving those kinds of messages on his – and like I said, I think I did it once or twice um, that I recall at least. Uh, you know, there was other things that I think I did. You know, I, we, we put up a billboard, you know, advertising a pay-per-view and did it very close to the Titan towers so that when everybody drove to work every morning, they could look at the advertisement for our pay-per-view. We, we didn't really think that that billboard would necessarily drive any pay-per-view business, but I thought, yeah, it's a good way to get under the guy's skin. And it was really all just to keep him off balance. I figured the more irritated I could keep him, And the more off balance I could get him, the less likely it was that he'd come up with some good ideas to come back after me. Now, little did I know, all I was really doing was poking the bear and making him more determined than ever to come back and and kick our ass, which is ultimately what happened. But at the time, you know, it was kind of like a Sun Tzu Art of War thing in my mind where I was just going to do everything I can to keep him off of his best game. And that's really why I did it.
0: I don't know why that's funny to me, but it is. It's such an Eric Bischoff thing. Uh, a a fun question here about Glacier from Matthew. He writes, what was the ceiling for the Glacier character? Was there any chance of a title run or potential major feuds? Now let's pretend, you know, that when you start forming the idea for this character, the NWO doesn't yet exist because I imagine that those two ideas, while you were trying different things, you could have never predicted the NWO would, would be nearly as successful as it was. We never really heard like what the ceiling was for the character. We've talked a little bit about blood runs cold and all of that, but what do you think it could have been?
1: I mean, that's a hard question to answer. Um, and I'm not really sure I know how to answer it other than I think when you create any character, especially one like glacier where we had a, a there was a, there was a logic behind it. There was a strategy in in creating that character. There was an end game in mind when we created that character that didn't necessarily have anything to do with winning titles or becoming a world champion or whatever. It was really all about creating a character that was popular enough and commercial enough that it could find its way into the video game market. That was the reason that that, that character was created. It wasn't created because we thought – in my mind, at least, because I thought that at some point it would become so popular uh, that the glacier, the character, become could become the world's heavyweight champion. That just wasn't the logic behind the development and the evolution of that character. Again, the logic behind the evolution and design of that character was to create something that was number one different than anything else. Number two was compatible with a lot of things that were very popular at that time in terms of licensing and video games, i.e. the Mortal Kombat uh, characters. um, That that was really the impetus and and the conceit behind that character. So it's hard for me to say what was the ceiling. You know, I, I guess the ceiling, ideally, if all things would have worked out the way we hoped they would have worked out, was it. You know, the the Glacier character and Blood, Blood Runs Cold, that collection of characters, could have evolved into a very successful video game trilogy, I guess. I don't know. but that, Because that was really the intent
0: behind it. Here's a uh, an interesting question from Trey. Had WWE went out of business instead of WCW, would Eric have brought in Vince McMahon to be an on-screen character? And if so, how would he have been booked?
1: Great question, <clears throat> and, and interesting in the sense that the very first conversation I had with Vince when he called me and I guess it was 2002 uh, about coming to WWE as a character. One of the one of the very first things that he said to me uh, when I when I answered the call and we we started getting into it was and I'm paraphrasing this I don't remember the exact words but it was something to the effect of Gee Eric I you know things turned out the way they turned out and. I, this was Vince now, I would like to think that had it turned out differently, that you would have reached out to me at some point with an opportunity to, to get back into business. And that was when he, and it was one of the things he said to me right off the bat. And it was probably at, in that moment, after hearing him say that, that in my mind Although I wasn't thinking it consciously, but subconsciously I'd probably already made up my mind I was gonna to go to work for him because it was such a an elegant and professional way to approach the situation that it made me respect the hell out of him instantly. And after I got done with that phone call and I, you know, I knew I was gonna to, to go to work for him, I actually thought about that for a little while. And I asked myself, what, what would I have done? You know, and it's hard for me to, to live in that kind of frame of mind. You know, I don't, I don't spend it as you know, we've talked about this before. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the past, which is one of the reasons sometimes I have a hard time remembering details of it because it's just, you know, once I live a day and it's, it's over, I'm, I'm thinking about the next day. I'm not thinking about the one that just passed, but you know, occasionally I think about, wow, what if, This would have happened or that would have happened. And I I would like to think I can't honestly say to be truthful with myself. I can't honestly say that I would have, you know, made it a point to cut to to try to come up with an opportunity to reach out to Vince and make him an offer similar to, to the one that he made me in 2002. But I would like to think I would. I would like to think if the situation would have presented itself and there would have been a great idea and there would have been something that we all believed in as an opportunity that would have been good for our business at WCW. Probably not unlike the way the discussions probably occurred in WWE when they were debating whether or not to pick up the phone and call me. At some point, I'm guessing, I wasn't in the room obviously, I'm guessing somebody said, yeah, past is the past, let's give the guy a call because this is something that could work out. And could make money for us, because there there was an opportunity that presented itself, and I would like to think that I would have been mature enough and professional enough, and elegant enough, to at least pick up the phone and make that phone call the way that Vince McMahon made it to me. Now, would I have done it? I don't know. Oh
0: come
1: if on! If you... I'm to- if I'm totally honest about it, I don't know if I would have or not.
0: Yeah, I, I would just like I would
1: like to think it.
0: The Eric Bischoff that was leaving, at, you know, braggy voicemails, he's booking that dude to come get thrown into a trash can. I mean, or a dumpster or, you know, have a drinking contest with one of the talents and vomit on TV and make out with Laurie and all the stuff that you had to do, right? Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> dude, you just crossed the line. At, I
1: mean, now, now, here's a funny part of that. You know, I like getting thrown in the, in the garbage truck, <laughs> that was my idea. No,
0: yeah, I know. I'm, I'm not, just uh, busting balls about how silly some of your on-screen stuff was. And I know, you know, in a room of ideas, there's no such thing as a bad idea. And eventually everybody landed on some pretty entertaining creative. But when you really look through the, 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 the rigors he puts you through on TV, it's pretty fucking hysterical to think about the opposite of that happening on Nitro.
1: I, you know, as you were giving, you know, in going through that list of crazy shit that I did, when you said you don't have Vince McMahon making out with your wife Lori, that I'm now I'm trying to picture that, But I'm trying to picture the look on my wife's face when I said, "Hey, Lori, I've got an idea." Right. I'm going to have Vince McMahon break into our house in Arizona, sneak in the back door, <laughs> and he's going to he's going to find you alone in your office, and he's going to hold your arm behind your back, and and he's going to kind of make it look like he's he's threatening you, and then he's going to lay a big one on you, and you're going to embrace him. Uh, and pretend you like it. Uh, Maybe not. Eh, that would have been a hard call. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just, God, we sometimes forget the silliness that happens in wrestling. Sometimes, you know, this show is always so serious, but then when you look back on some of that stuff, it was a good time.
1: It was, well, you know, and I got to say that, you know, you, it, it, and I, again, perception is a funny thing, but you know, so many people thought oh they're just bringing eric back they're going to humiliate him they're going to embarrass him they're going to do this to him they're going to do that to him and they put me in a lot of situations where i guess if from the outside one might think i was embarrassed but to if anybody thinks that i was embarrassed to you know play a character on TV that was getting into a drinking contest with Stone Cold Steve Austin and ended up drinking so much beer that I threw up. If anybody thinks that I thought that was embarrassing, let me be really fucking clear to you right now on this show. I had a blast. I love doing that stuff. If anybody thinks that, you know, me being thrown in a garbage truck, you know, my last night on the show was embarrassing for me. Let me correct your thinking. I love that idea. I thought it was a great way to go out, no pun intended. So a lot of that stuff that people think was designed to embarrass me right. didn't. I had a blast doing it. I would have written it had I had the opportunity. It's fun stuff. Uh, and wrestling should be fun. This product should be entertaining. It should make you laugh. It should make you you know, go, holy crap, I can't believe they're doing this stuff. I mean, look at the silly stuff that Vince made his own daughter do. Right. Made her take a stink face for crying out loud from Rikishi. Come on. Look at the stuff that Vince did to himself. And he wrote the stuff. <laughs> you know, He wet his pants on national television for crying out loud because Stone Cold Steve Austin put a toy gun to his head, pulled the trigger, and a little flag came out and said, bang. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's just – it's stuff that, yeah, he, he, he did that. He asked me to do those things, but he also asked – his family to do some of those he may, he asked his wife to make out with me. I'm sure she wasn't thrilled about it either, or his daughter. <laughs> <You
0: know? laughs> I, mean, I don't know why c- this is
1: funny, but it is oh uh, it, it should be fun and it should be funny
0: well, and that's the thing like you know behind the scenes as as maybe some of that stuff sounds humiliating, actually coming up with the idea and going through it and filming it and and pulling it together that's gotta be a fucking blast to do like that just seems like something everybody would have enjoyed but it is fun to think about Vince McMahon on Nitro um here's a question we get a lot and I mean I get this question in various forms dm to me every day for years this is from addicted to profit how the hell can I get a writing job for the WWE I don't have Hollywood experience like is required in the online application um tons of people want to know how do I get in the business and I know that you're not hiring anybody up there at this point, but, or I mean, you might be, I don't know. But what advice would you give someone who, who wants to get into the business but doesn't exactly know how?
1: Oh, that's a tough one, you know, because there's no there's no standard way right. to, to, to get into this business. Now, obviously, when it comes to writing, especially here at WWE, um, it, it, it's a much more sophisticated process than it probably used to be. Um, I, I can't give you any, you know, practical step one, step two, step three advice, and I'm not going to do it on this podcast, but you know, human resources at WWE, you know, can walk you through the process. Um, I think he, the first thing that I, I would do if I was, let's, let's do it this way. If I didn't know what I know, right. And I was on the outside looking in and I didn't know how to go about this process. The first thing that I would do is I would, I would create some writing samples. And and, and by that, I mean don't don't write about characters that currently exist. Don't write about what you're currently watching on TV and how you would make it better or what you would add to it. Create characters. Create characters that don't currently exist. Create a story that doesn't currently exist. Have a writing sample of a beginning and a middle and an end of a storyline that you think represents – your unique perspective and and talents that that could be applied to, to what, you know, WWE or anybody else does on television. Uh, It doesn't necessarily have to be a wrestling story. It can be any kind of a story. Uh, If you've written comic books, you know, lay out a, lay out a a story with comic book characters that's original and submit those uh, and keep submitting them. Put your stuff online. Uh, get your stuff out there, but make yourself known. I mean, there's so many opportunities in social media today to engage, whether it's Reddit or whatever, you know, the other platforms that are out there, you know, start putting some of your ideas out there online and, and getting some, some feedback from the online community, get yourself known, put your stuff on Facebook. There's a lot of different ways. There's no easy way. There's no single way that I can point you to, or process, but there are many different ways. And I think part of being a great writer is being creative and part of being creative is finding out how to do it and coming up with creative ways to get your material out there. So it's seen by other people. I'm not going to name names, but there are examples of people right now in, in WWE that are part of the writing team that were noticed because of the way they covered the industry and the way they wrote about it online that got attention. So there's no single way, there's no easy way, but there are a lot of different ways. And I think if you're creative and you think you're creative, use that creative power or talent or instinct that you have to, to get your material out there and and let people see what it is you have to offer.
0: Lots of questions about this this week. I'm sure you were expecting something like it. This comes from Z4 Spade Gamer, Oral Davis, number one fan. Uh, What are your thoughts on NXT versus AEW's Wednesday night war?
1: Oh, I think it's going to be interesting. You know, uh, it's, it's been one week now. Um, I'm, I'm going to be very interested to see where things stand in 90 days. Which I'm sure everybody else is too. So there's no, <laughs> there's nothing enlightening about my perspective from that point of view. But I think it's early. I think it's great for the industry. I think it's it's re-energized the fan base. I think it's re-energized the talent, and I'm pretty certain it has re-energized the respective offices where decisions are made and commitments are made. So I, I think it's a great thing. You know, there's nothing negative about it, and. I, I think, you know, I looked at one of your posts this morning when I first got up on social media. It's the first time I've really looked at social media in a long time this week. And yeah. I, I read one of your posts that basically said, hey, you know, what a great week to be a wrestling fan. You know, Monday Night Raw, new sets, you know, new stories, yeah. great angle, whatever. And Wednesday and, you know, Friday. And there's there's so much great stuff going on right now that quite honestly, I almost said quite frankly, I got to quit saying that so much. Honestly, if, if you would have told me two years ago that this week would be happening and everything that's going on this week would be happening, I would have, I would have bet everything I, I owned against it. I, I just wouldn't have believed that, that we would have experienced the week that we've just experienced if someone would have said it was going to happen two years ago. And I think it, it may not be the Monday Night Wars. It, it's just not. But Damn. I'm not sure it's not better in, 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 in different ways. It's not the same, but it's different and it's good.
0: Let me ask, um, you know, I know that we don't necessarily want to talk about new stuff and I know, uh, you've probably got to be, or we've got to be careful on your side of the desk of of how we handle this. I don't want you to necessarily critique any of the Wednesday night stuff, but did you see any of the AEW show? And can you, can you say one nice thing about anything you saw?
1: Um, I did watch it actually. And uh, actually I watched it twice. Um, I think the takeaway for me, the biggest thing that I saw that I liked was the crowd. The crowd was, the crowd was lit in, in, in every conceivable way. You could see that crowd. They were excited to be there. They were an active part of the show. I've said this before to you. And I've said it before in different interviews. I'm not sure if this is true or not, but someone told me once that Elvis Presley was describing what makes a good show, good concert. And according to, what I was told, Elvis Presley said something to the effect of the best part of my show isn't on stage. It's out in the crowd. it's It's the reaction and the emotion of the people that are in the audience, or something to that effect. And I, that's always stuck with me. I've always believed that the crowd, you know if there's if there's two uh, if there's a, uh, two women or two guys in a, in a match with a referee as the third third person in the ring, the fourth person in the ring is the audience. There's as much a part of the show as anything, in my opinion. And I think what I saw Wednesday night from AEW was a crowd that was just intensely engaged in the product in the ring and and the show. And from a production value point of view, um, you could see it. The, The lighting made the audience a part of the show. And that to me was, that was my biggest positive of that show you know i'm not going to critique you know the the entering action and anything like that um but the overall when i walked out of the room after watching this show the first thing on my mind was wow that crowd made that show
0: yeah i was actually able to attend the show and it's one of the hottest crowds i've ever been a part of it felt like an old ecw crowd where you know everybody's just so. Uh, on the same page it's not like you know we're, we're all here for different things which sometimes feels that way at wrestling shows like everybody sort of has their favorite but with this it felt like you know everybody was sort of in unison it was almost like an old um the old feel you would get it like a pep rally for a college or or pro for, college is probably right there's just so much energy in the crowd and in particular uh the ladies match really really uh took me back i don't know what my expectations were but it exceeded it uh, in a major way, and a lot of that was because of the crowd. The way you know the crowd was just so into it at the end. It was it was a very exciting show. And let's talk a little bit about um, uh, and this is uh, uh, something we haven't really talked about. Festival de Lucha. This is from DJ Lewis. Can you tell us anything about Festival de Lucha? I was at what appears to have been the only taping in Waco, Texas, in January of ninety nine. It was a great show, and I believe it was only on Telemundo once, but it didn't continue. Uh, the final match from that night is on the network i don't remember festival de lucha at all what can you tell us eric
1: man i vaguely remember it uh, i think that was an experiment that we were trying you know we were looking at different ways to try to ex- expand it into the hispanic market and we were actually considering producing a syndicated show that would live <clears throat> primarily in markets mostly up and down the West coast that had a high density of Hispanic populations. Um, so it, I, I it was a kind of a pilot more than anything, but that's about all I remember of it.
0: Uh, one of the questions we get a lot, it's about, you know, the way you used to dress on nitro. And one of the questions this week came from Kent Graham, did you have a collection of leather jackets or was it always the same one? And if it was, do you still have it? <laughs>
1: Uh, Well, I wore different leather jackets, uh, I mean, different, uh, a couple different types. Towards the end, I used uh, the kind of old traditional Harley Davidson motorcycle jacket, and I had that same one I wore for a long time, you know, probably a year and a half, two years, I used that jacket almost exclusively. And one night in Las Vegas, actually, it got stolen in a restaurant. So I had to get a new one that kind of looked just like it. But for a long time, I wore the same jacket.
0: Ryan Evans wants to know did Eric ever want to sign Owen Hart? Uh no, it it never
1: uh was never a subject that came up and, and not not any disrespect to Owen or to suggest that he wasn't couldn't have been a valuable part of the roster but you know there was there was by 97 there just wasn't a need 96 really there wasn't a need to bring in a lot more top talent. You know, we were top talent heavy at the time now that that changed you know with thunder and you know bret hart and that type of thing but um no Owen was never uh was never a topic of conversation uh,
0: broncello wants to know tony always talks highly of klondike bill any fun klondike bill stories you can share
1: you know i never worked you know too closely with klondike you know tony obviously knew him uh, a lot better than i did i think m- the most interaction that i had with bill was uh when Ric Flair had defeated me or become the, the president of WCW for a period of time, and he was making me do all kinds of menial tasks from cleaning toilets to setting up the ring and things like that. And it was in one of those scenes where I, from a storyline point of view, I was working for Klondike Bill, and he was just busting my chops because I didn't even know how to put up a wrestling ring. So it was it was fun. Klondike was great. But, you know, I, I never really interacted with with Bill too much beyond that.
0: Another name we hear on Tony's podcast, uh, brought a question from Adam here. Who was Nancy Turnbuckle and why did she have such an awesome name?
1: Fuck, I don't even know.
0: Well, it was a, a nickname for someone who, uh, uh, helped a lot in production and may, maybe, uh, occasionally got criticized by Bobby Heenan or Tony Schiavone about, uh, uh, her look. I think maybe she maybe had an accident once during a show.
1: Well, that's obscure to me. That's a, that's a Tony question. I'm not even, I don't even know how to respond to that one.
0: Okay. We'll keep it moving. (laughs) Keith wants to know, did you ever have any desire to go into politics, whether it's mayor, Congress, president?
1: Mm, Not, not serious desire. I mean, there's been times I've actually thought about it. Um, but. When I was in when I was living in Arizona I started getting a little bit interested in local politics because of you know the community I lived in when we lived in Arizona was a little town called Cave Creek Arizona and it had a lot of charm to it it was a yeah it was a historic town in many respects uh, the, the it, it, during the late 1800s it was uh, an army outpost and silver was discovered and it kind of was a little bit of a boom town. So it has a lot of kind of old West history and and charm associated with it. So it's a beautiful little community and it retained some of that heritage. You know, you could, and I had horses at the time and I, I kept my horses about five miles outside of town and I could literally go to, where I boarded my horses and saddle them up and I could ride my horse into town and there were restaurants and bars that, that actually had corrals where you could park your horse. just like you park your car. You could park your horse and go in and grab a bite to eat and ride your horse back. You ride through downtown. They had horse trails that went right through downtown and all that kind of stuff. So it had that kind of old West charm that I love. This was one of the reasons that I moved there. And then uh, shortly after I moved there, there was a lot of new building, a lot of new construction, a lot of condominiums going up, big hotels going up, and all the things that kind of took away the charm of the city. And and when that started happening, I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick my head in the door of these town council meetings and kind of see how this process is going because this community is going to change rapidly if a lot of these things keep going through and people don't raise their hand and try to stop some of it or at least curtail it. And I went to a couple of town council meetings and what I saw was just ridiculous. I mean, it was, it it was like the worst garbage gimmick match you've ever seen in any professional wrestling show you've ever watched. It was just, it was, and I just couldn't imagine being a part of that. I, I don't have the patience for it. I couldn't tolerate the people I would have to tolerate, um, you know, that are part of these city councils. And it's just, it, it's just so ridiculous that for a fleeting moment, I was considering it. But after I saw the process firsthand, it's just not for me. Just Brian, not wired that way.
0: Brian Hanson wants to know what hurt worse, the power bomb from Kevin Nash at the great American bash through the table or any chop from Ric Flair after the lawsuit.
1: I'd have to go with the chop. You know, the, the power bomb honestly didn't, I didn't feel anything, you know. It, it didn't hurt at all. I mean, Kevin, despite the fact that we didn't rehearse it and I had never taken one before and all that, you know, by the grace of God, nothing, nothing bad happened. So there was, I didn't feel anything on that. So I, I the the chops, on the other hand, I, I, yeah, I felt those, and I, I knew I was going to feel them. You know, it's coming, and they
0: definitely definitely heard a lot more Uh, two last questions. Then we'll wrap things up. Joseph wants to know if you were going to leave Conrad for a WWE podcast network, who would be your co-host and why is it doc Hendricks?
1: I'll tell you what, that would be interesting. I, Michael and I, you know, we had a conversation about a week and a half or two weeks ago, and I'm not going to go into the details of it, but it, it, I, I I realize, you know, we've had, we've known each other for a long, long time. And it's, you know, one of those relationships that kind of went in one direction and and I wasn't really sure why until I was reminded. And we get along great now. He's, he's another guy that I have a ton of respect for. I mean, when... When you talk about psychology, when you talk about coming up with great finishes, when you talk about laying out a match, you, you may not always agree with with someone like Michael, but damn, you respect the opinion for sure. And I love working with him. Um, I, I, I think we could have a hell of a podcast. I don't know if we'd we'd I don't know if we'd last more than four or five episodes before we got sick of each other, but damn, it could be a lot of fun for those four or five episodes.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you uh, not sticking up for me there at all, asshole. Uh, enjoy your new podcast with. Uh, <laughs> well, wow,
1: that was a it was a hypothetical, Cutter. What am I supposed to say?
0: No, I know I'm busting balls. Uh, there is a, another question <laughs> that I don't know why it sticks out to me, but God, it does. Let me find it here. It's from Kevin. If a tree fell in a forest and there was nobody around to hear it, would Dave Meltzer still be wrong?
1: <laughs> the tree <laughs> fell before us and there was no one around to hear it that motherfucker must be smoking some really good weed
0: <laughs> well you know where it comes from it's just no matter what Dave Meltzer writes you take issue with it and we didn't have to deal with any of that today but unfortunately we're back to our regular routine next week because we're going to be bringing you Halloween Havoc 1996 uh, as we keep progressing on October 21st you'll hear Scott Hall and WCW On the 28th, we'll cover Halloween Havoc 1997. On November 4th, a very special event, When Worlds Collide 94. On November 11th, we'll cover Clash of the Champions 29, a.k.a. the funeral of Eric Bischoff. I'm going to bury him, and it will take two shovels. On November 18th, the 1995 World War III. And on November 25th, the 1997 World War III. But next week halloween havoc 96 such a special time in my fandom uh we just recently covered the uh, the war games episode from the month prior so we'll keep it moving here uh, and do the same for halloween havoc 96 and you may even have a story behind the scenes about the macho man randy savage we'll we'll circle up on that another time but what a card dean malenko and ray mysterio for the cruiserweight title diamond dallas page and Andy guerrero the giant and jeff jarrett Six and Chris Jericho, Lex Luger and Arn Anderson. It's going to be one of Arn's last matches. Uh, Steve Mongo, McMichael and Chris Benoit against the faces of fear, Ming and Barbarian. Then we've got the outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash taking on the Harlem Heat and in your main event, Hollywood Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. And this is the, uh, the show where I think a lot of people remember the main event for two reasons. One Hulk Hogan fresh off a three ninjas movie. Is sporting a hairpiece that the macho man will commandeer in the middle of the match for a hilarious moment. And then after the match is over, Roddy, rowdy, Roddy Piper debuts. And you guys managed to keep it a secret. What a cool show at NGM grand. This was all the way back on October 27th, 1996. What are you looking forward to talking about with that one?
1: All of it. All of it. That was probably one of my favorite. Uh, of all the pay-per-views we've done, it was definitely in the top two or three, in, in terms of my all-time favorites. It was, it was such a great time. We were beginning to go on a great roll. From a creative perspective, we were just firing on all cylinders. The energy, the emotion, the passion, the and actually the camaraderie. There was a period of time in '96, and this was a great time, where you know is is wide of a cast of characters and personalities as we had in our tent you know everybody was kind of pulling in the same direction and and enjoying the success that we were having so it was a it was really a high point for me in this particular pay-per-view and uh had a blast doing it, and can't wait to talk about it
0: well we had a blast covering this episode today eric i gotta tell you i know we do a lot of different topics here on the show i think ask eric anything these, these sort of uh, freestyle Q and A questions. This may be my favorite type of show to do with you. I had a blast today. I did too,
1: Conrad. And, and despite the fact that you feel like I'm going to abandon you for Michael PSAs, <laughs> I, I, I I appreciate the opportunity. I appreciate the opportunity to do it.
0: I, I'm telling you, when I hang up with you right now, I'm calling Hayes and I'm I'm cutting a promo about him taking my fucking podcast co host, and he'll have no idea what I'm talking about. But uh, I'm looking forward to it. So you have a chop coming your way, I'm sure. All right, buddy. Thanks. Hey, thanks everybody. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Tylus and Callaway and on and How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? You pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.